Rajiv ji was uh, very kindly referred to me as a friend but uh, I actually see him as a guru uh, and I'll for uh, most of us for actually most people the two most important uh, influences on us are our parents and our gurus parents uh, we don't choose or perhaps our soul chooses gurus we ourselves choose those we choose to get influence from those whose books we read they are both very important Namaste. Am I uh, audible? Okay. You know, I want to uh, thank the organizers who worked very hard for the last several months to uh, put my tour together, and of course, Amish Tripathi, a dear friend who's the director here, and here is Amish. Please give him a hand. I'm honored to be welcoming you Amish here. <laughs> we are, we are we are we are very good friends for a long time. And so uh so it's wonderful. Namaste everyone. Um uh, Rajiv ji was uh, very kindly referred to me as a friend but uh, I actually see him as a guru. Um uh, and I'll for uh, most of us for actually most people the two most important uh influences on us are our parents and our gurus parents uh, we don't choose or perhaps our soul chooses gurus we ourselves choose those we choose to get influence from those whose books we read they are both very important uh, i remember i read this book many years ago uh, by a lady called wendy donegar i'm sure you must be aware and i read uh, a description of lord ganesh and i swear i was extreme and i'm a liberal person i was extremely offended and i had spoken to my parents at that time and my parents had told me something very wise that uh, you have answers to this because you have been taught everything that parents should teach which is the rama and mahabharat and the puranas that's something that i want to leave with you guys as parents our primary duty i have nothing against other religious groups who teach their religions that's what they should be doing how much we teach of our own culture to our own children we don't have to go up to the vedas and the, you know upanishads this has too difficult but at least the ramayana mahabharat and the purana should be taught it makes us aware of who we are but that that was the benefit that i was given through my parents but it's not enough because it doesn't help you explain things which you don't understand there are some of us who are storytellers who are public intellectuals but we are not scholars right so we don't understand what's going on in western universities so when a theory comes out that an 8 year old child can be taken away from their parents uh, because the child himself or herself chooses that they are going through gender dysphoria or something you you simply cannot fathom and wrap your head around what theory would have made this possible um if there are uh, you know things that where there are Uh, hindu uh, you know indology schools or they saying and i've read many of their books almost everyone who's running those indology departments in uh, american universities seems to hate hinduism which i wonder then what are they doing I and mean, you don't have islamic studies 
uh, in western universities by those who hate islam you don't have buddhist studies by those who hate buddhism and i find it very surprising but we are not scholars so we don't understand what's going on which is why we need gurus like rajiv ji who help us understand what is going on because only when we understand what is going on can we actually make our response that is the first step and which is why rajiv ji i feel embarrassed when you refer to me as a friend i actually see you as one of my gurus whose books i read and who i get deeply influenced by we've met very few times so actually your influence on me has been more through my books now i would encourage all of you not just pick up snakes in the ganga pick up all his books they are all available on on amazon read them understand what is going on because remember you may not be interested in that scholarship but that scholarship is interested in you is interested in you and will start impacting your life a few years later a decade later a decade and a half later so you have to understand what is going on people like rajiv ji gurus like rajiv ji help us understand thank you first thing i want to tell you is don't let the size of the book scare you it's not meant for weightlifting the book is written at three levels you'll get 99% of the value and the benefit of the book in a few hours read the introduction read the conclusion chapter and in between every chapter has a one page summary it's written such that if you go on a long flight for a few hours you can within 100 pages you can get the idea the whole thesis of the book which i will explain to you you will get the whole thesis of the book what you will not get for which you need to read further and you read only selectively those things that you want to read further what you will not get will be the proof because the proof the evidence the quotations where things happened who did what why who funded this and who funded that is given in the details so if you want to know what is the thesis and you want to say let's me trust rajiv at face value what he says must be true so i just then you only need to do the level 1 reading and for 99% of people that's more than enough if they were to do it and act on it it would be so great those of you who want to then go and take it up as a fight and make it your intellectual kshatriya cause will run into situations where people the on the opposite side will say prove it i don't believe it and they'll give you some some argument and then you can go back to the book on that particular chapter and read more the third level is about 300 pages of end notes and bibliography at the end which is for scholars who want to do a phd who want to do a dissertation they need to do all that so it's written at three levels and it's written as one book rather than separately so that you know everyone who has a copy of this is very confident that i have the backup the backup is also right here inside the same book that's why it's a large book but you need to read about 100 pages and i think that uh, that is all i'm looking for for most people now i want to talk about the tectonic forces that are threatening india that are undermining india and and they are so different than the first breaking india book exposed that this is now called breaking india 2.0 i want to talk about not only what the threats are but how to confront them and how to counter them because that's very important we are not we are not explaining and interpreting the threat so you can get scared we are we are explaining so we you can get empowered so the first out of these six or seven major categories the first is ideological 
there's a whole new ideology most of you when you think of marxism you never connected with united states it's the most uh, capitalist anti marxist kind of country that you think but let me tell you marxism has been reincarnated in a whole new form which is made in america what has happened is in traditional marxism you have the theory that people are oppressors and oppressed and this is economic theory of oppression and marxism wants to build an anti narrative a counter to the narrative of the oppressor and wants to have a revolution and overthrow that so what has now happened is that instead of talking about economic oppression the I, marxism has been expanded to include race so blacks being oppressed lgbtq being oppressed by those who are straight muslims being oppressed by other religions and this is all united states happening and very recently dalits being included as oppressed people so this coalition of oppressed uses marxist idea that we should all stay together and defeat the oppressor all the all the structures of society government is a structure family is a structure that should be broken family and so on all the structures of society have to be dismantled because the oppressors built them and because they continue to survive and thrive generation after generation because they are they are the keepers of this structure so it's a very intelligent actually thing it says that uh, you have you have inherited certain structures which give you privilege you are not a bad person as an individual but you are enjoying those structures those structures give you the benefits that i don't have as an oppressed person that's kind of the argument so the logic is that meritocracy what we call meritocracy may the best person win that's meritocracy on which the united states become such a great nation you, the success of the un united states is because of it, the meritocracy and hence it became the leader of innovation in the world meritocracy is being attacked because the very idea of meritocracy is a is a conspiracy of the oppressors to keep us oppressed so we can never get ahead under this so called meritocracy iits are being attacked there's a book by harvard professor ajanta subramaniam that is making their legal cases being fought in silicon valley against iit people on the basis that you are perpetuating a, a kind of oppression because iit is an institution of oppression this is very strange but this is what's what's going on and so the idea is that a quota system is now coming into united states which is called equity equality means we're all equal and the best person will become the surgeon or the pilot or the director of something merit but equity is not the same thing as equality equity says to have equity the people should be representative of all segments of society all all uh, identities whether you are good or bad a certain percentage of people of lgbtq should become surgeons and pilots and certain percentage of blacks and hispanics and all kind of minorities certain percentage of muslims should become uh, you know leaders so it's a quota in every pla place a quota in uh, corporate boards in quota in uh, in all the all the different realms in quota in academics uh, uh, i have people who are physicists working with nobel laureates who are leaving the us universities and going to other countries because they are saying that this uh, this business of uh, uh, critical race theory and wokeism and equity is affecting their career 
So the paper is not being accepted on merit in a scientific journal, but based on its, its relevance for social justice. Somebody else whose paper may be inferior, but is constantly quoting social justice and these kind of things, his paper will get in and your paper won't because it did not argue on that basis. So America is also losing its meritocracy because of these internal things. Nobody else has attacked America. It's an internal thing, an internal homebred Marxism, which is going in the name of critical race theory and also wokeism. So it's a very, it's like termites eating from within. Now, it affects Indians and Hindus in the United States, and I would say also in Britain and elsewhere, because, you know, we came there entirely on merit. Nobody gave me any favors. Nobody did anything special for to help us out. We came as individuals fighting against all odds and entirely based on merit, we became successful. And so now we are being told that this meritocracy is a sham, that you are basically using, taking advantage of structures that were created by oppressors in, in the United States. So, you know, in one of the... One of the arguments of this ideology is that people of color cannot get ahead. They have to dismantle the whole system. They have to have a revolution and break it down. The reason being that people of color cannot be, the system does not accept the people of color to advance. It is, the, the meritocracy won't allow them to advance. But then the facts are opposite. Indians have the highest per capita income in the United States. Asians in general. In education, we are the best. In jobs, we are the best. So how does, how does this ideology reconcile that people of color like us are doing so well? So what they have come up with to address this is to brand us white adjacent. So I am called white adjacent, which means you are not really white, but you are white adjacent means you are a conspirator with the whites because your success is the result of supporting the structures, supporting the meritocracy, supporting the system. You're part of the system. That system is an abusive system against, against uh, oppressed people and you are supporting the system. So all of you who are doing very well, it's because you are white adjacent. This is a term being used. Now, there is a term called protected classes in US law, civil rights law. And there are criminal consequences uh, it's, a, it's a civil law and also criminal law. Protected classes are people who have been designated by the law in the United States as people who deserve special protection. So blacks and now there are other type of groups. So Muslims are lobbying to become protected class by banning anybody engaged in what they would consider Islamophobia. See, this is very interesting. U.S. Constitution says you cannot discriminate on religion. So why would you ban Islamophobia and not ban Hinduphobia or Christianphobia or Jewish phobia? You know, phobias against all religions. But there is a bill to criminalize Islamophobia, which says that the U.S. government at the, at the cabinet level should appoint a, a, a committee that will be scanning Islamophobia. It will be con con uh, constituted by Muslims. And anywhere in the world, anyone who is accused of uh, Islamophobia will have U.S. law working against him. So many people around here would be considered Islamophobic and violating U.S. law if that bill pa passed. So this bill uh, passed the U.S. Congress, which is the lower house, with only one vote against it. So you can imagine the amount of support from the Democratic Party to go put it through because the lobby, the Muslim lobby is so strong. And then it was put in the Senate for vote 
that's when I got uh, notified of this. So the person who, the senator who put it on the floor of the U.S. Senate is a U.S. is a New Jersey senator, Cory Booker, uh, an African American, a decent man, somebody I have funded and supported, and I, I I I liked him a lot. But when this happened, I called his office and said, "Why don't you say we that this law should ban Islamophobia and Hindu phobia and Christian phobia, Jewish phobia, all the phobias against all the religions? If you want to have hate speech criminalized, then it should be against all any any religion should be equal treated." They didn't respond at all. So I went public and wrote a whole lot of online stuff and this created a big furor and the the bill just froze. It never went through. It just died. It bill died. Otherwise it would have gone through and it would have become law because Biden would have signed it. So we would have had a <laughs> Now, of course, even if it had passed, people would protest and people would challenge it as unconstitutional because it's giving favorite treatment to one religion. Imagine what you are doing by having a law that says don't criticize Islam because it's considered Islamophobic and then it will be a criminal offense. Then what you are doing is in classrooms and in offices and all that, you are creating conflict among people. Because one person will say, hey, you dare not criticize me, but I can make fun of your deities. I can say you are worshipping a monkey and an elephant and, you know, you're worshipping phallus and all these kind of you know, horrible things that they say. And we have no defense, but they have a defense. This would not be fair. This would be, that's how, why I criticized it. Not that I want people to attack Islam or any religion. I, I want people to respect all the faiths, all the faiths, but it should be on an equal. I want to respect your faith, but I demand that you respect mine. That has to be mutual. So you see, as meritocratic people, Indian Americans have a lot to lose because we earned our place on merit. And as family people, they consider family to be an abusive structure because they say that you learn, the child learns to be abusive because he copies it from the parents. And so the family structure itself is to be dismantled. This is why this whole LGBTQ and this gender fluidity, you can be male, female, you can cross over back and forth. There is no hard line. And, you know, there are some very embarrassing, very interesting uh, uh, videos where a senior person in the U.S. Congress or Senate has been asked, uh, can you define what is a woman? And the person doesn't want to define what's a woman because their belief is that there's no such thing. And so they've come up with terms like birthing, bodies, which means a body is capable of giving birth. That's called woman. So a very mechanized, demeaning, and the feminists are against it. So now this business of dismantling womanhood in order to dismantle families is created a clash with the conventional, traditional white feminists. They are very upset at this. This business that there is no such thing as women, so uh, per se, so a man could have a sex change operation, call himself a woman and compete in the Olympics and in sports as, as with women and win medals. There is a swimmer who is now winning all kinds of gold, uh, medals in the United States and the women swimmers are upset because this is a male who became a female. So you see, this business of uh, dismantling structures is also dismantling the idea of sexuality and gender and family not just government and politics and race, but all structures are considered to be abusive because all structures were made by uh, supremacists and oppressors. This is how ridiculous the whole thing is. Now, why, how is this being 
how is this taking shape in the form of forces on the ground? This is ideology, but let's move on beyond ideology. So I was in Canada having a debate with Khalistan people in the Gurdwara. So somebody invited me and said, do you want to have a conversation? I said, yeah, I'll address them. If they're civil people, I'll talk to them and I'll give them my point of view. So I was heckled and booed and all that. So I walked out. I said, this is not what I wanted. I wanted a debate. So the leader was very, he said, come, I'll scold them and they have to sit and listen to you. So I was, I basically said, listen, they said to, they, they were shouting, uh, you know, that, uh, the, that Punjab is being destroyed by RSS and Brahmins. So I said, how many of you have seen RSS people in Punjab? You know, and too many RSS Brahmins. How many Brahmins in Punjab? Are they running the show? How many of them in the government? Do you know who is destroying your Punjab villages? And they are looking at me like that. I said, drugs. It's not brought by some RSS people or Brahmins. Who brings the drugs? That's who's destroying. And your own political leaders, your own leaders in the Gurdwaras are, are, are in bed with these drug dealers because they get money out of it. They are part of the drug crime because, and that is what's destroying your villages and your youth. And I said, what is the other biggest destruction of Punjab? Again, they were looking around. I said, Christian evangelism, they're converting more Sikhs. There is more conversion in Punjab than anywhere else in India. And they were shocked. And the, the person standing next to me, he, he said, yeah, this is true. I said, the World Council of Churches has put out a statement saying that by 2030, we want that more Sikh youth will be going to church than to Gurdwara. That means in the next seven years, there'll be more Christianity than Sikhism in your own state. And the biggest uh, cathedral... In, uh, in all of Asia is near Jalandhar. People, they all knew these things, but they're not putting it together. So they were stunned, these fellows. Now, I understand, I, I got into the details of why there is a Khalistan problem in Canada. I don't know about Britain. I haven't done the investigation. But the reason is that the, the Jats have been designated, the Sikh Jats, which is the Khalistanis, the Sikh Jats. They're not the other kind of Sikhs. The Sikhs have got many communities, the Chats, who are very prosperous. They are peasants. They are farmers. The farmers in Punjab, very successful, very rich. The Jats have been designated as a protected class in Canada. Protected class means they're under threat. They are oppressed. And they've made the case with politicians and they've put it through the system. And so now if all you have to do from Punjab is apply as somebody under threat, and in the refugee quota, you will get your immigration immediately. The normal quota will take, the, the normal line to get in uh, Canada is, takes many years. And you have to go through a lot of procedure. But if you want a fast track, a fast track to get into Canada, you just have to say that I'm, uh, I'm a, a jot under threat and uh, produce some story. And you have lawyers, that a whole League lawyers, a whole kind of a cottage industry of lawyers, immigration lawyers, whose main career is to get jats into Canada under immigration, charge them a lot of fees. So this is a scam. The whole thing is a scam. And our ministry needs to know these things. That basically, the Canadian government has allowed this to happen because they've created a special quota for immigration for such people. So you see, this ideology I just described has consequences. If you want to understand the deeper causes of what is causing so much, so many, so many of these separatists to be adopted in certain countries, you have to see under what immigration category they came. They came in the category of refugees, most of them, refugees. And so under that category, they have to prove that I'm under threat 
And to prove under, I'm under threat, you have to adopt all this wokeism and all this new kind of Marxism and prove I'm an oppressed. That's the connection between the ideology and the ground reality that we are fighting. So the, there are many examples I won't give, uh, 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 but you can read them in the book. Harvard University has a Suraj Yengde, uh, who's become like the poster boy of a Dalit oppressed person, although he's flying first class and he's very proud that you know, he's got this much and that much donation and contribution and whatnot. So he's living the good life, but he's claiming to be representing the oppressed. He considers himself to be the successor of Ambedkar. That is what he goes around saying. And he's built this Afro-Dalit coalition. Afro-Dalit means African uh, uh, blacks and Dalits are brothers. And in my first book, Breaking India, the original Breaking India 1.0, I have chapter after chapter on Afro-Dalits. I, I predicted this 12, 13 years ago. People didn't take it seriously. Read that book under the heading Afro-Dalits and you will see the whole explanation of what is being developed that far back. And now it has become reality. So now what has happened is, because we ignored it, we didn't take it seriously. Our people just didn't take it seriously. They thought this is not possible. But it is reality. So and now in every black church, in every black uh, you know institution there is, Dalits are being brought in as sort of their... The Dalits are black adjacent. We are white adjacent and they are black adjacent. Yeah, you see, there was a time when to get ahead in America, uh, the people would fake some kind of whiteness. Like Bobby Jindal was a politician who would try to become white. So I would make fun that these are honorary whites. That's the way to get ahead in the American system. But now the latest gimmick is that you can become an honorary black and you can get ahead. Because as an honorary black, you are you consider a protected class and you have all kind of quotas and all kind of privileges. So this coalition is becoming very strong. The, this, the left the, is providing the intellectual gravitas, the intellectual rigor, dignity, decency, uh, ability to talk, nice, slick, quote, uh, academic language. They, they give it respect because they have all this theory. That's the left. And the Islamic, Islamists are being used as the ground forces who can create Ghadar, who can go or become rowdy and do all sorts of things. Blacks have been appropriated as useful ground forces to do all the heavy lifting and fighting. And then the LGBTQ people have been recruited. And now the Dalits. So the left is providing a kind of a coalition. They create a coalition of all these grievances. These are called grievances. Grievance people. Anyone with grievance can make a case that uh, people like me are biased, uh, uh, prejudiced by other people. And therefore, we should have a quota. So sometimes I'm thinking I should say that uh, men who are bald with glasses are grievous people. And if I can get one lakh uh, signatures, then, you know, we may have a quota for that. <laughs> so this is, this is the... And there is a field of study called grievance studies. In the U.S. liberal arts, you have grievance studies where there is a, a special, one of the categories coming up is called fat studies. So people who are overweight are saying that there is bias against us. There is nothing wrong with being fat. There is no medical proof that being fat is bad and all that. Uh, it's all made up uh, bias against us by uh, people who are not fat. So there is a grievous category called fat and so on. All kind of uh, weird grievances. So this business of uh, turning all kind of people with grievances into oppressed, uniting them, and fighting against the system as a system of oppression, 
that is what is wokeism and critical race theory and that is why the united states is losing its competitiveness because it's no longer a meritocracy and it's losing out to china which is laughing all the way uh, at this kind of a thing so there are so many examples facing indians there are lawsuits uh, against cisco uh, somebody made a lawsuit uh, uh, cisco had to defend it uh, that uh, you know that this brahmin did not give a promotion to this guy because he's a Dalit. So they had to have a big fight over that legally. And now there are uh, cases with many states and cities and many universities starting with Harvard have enacted a legal a policy, official policy that says that caste is a form of racism. And all the laws of racism in the United States, which as you can imagine are very serious laws. The laws against racism are very tough. I mean, you are accused of racism, it's pretty bad. Uh, it's like, you know, dowry murder in India, you just have to be accused and a lot of laws are there. Uh, in the United States, racism has those kind of laws. And now to, to club caste as a form of racism means that somebody just has to blow the, to have to go there and file a complaint that, hey, you know, you didn't hire me or you did this and that because of my caste, because I'm a Dalit. So you've given, created a lot of uh, boost to this uh, clash, the conflicts that are within society. And so this is... Uh, 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 there's a lot written in this book and even more than what's written in the book we are coming out with. So these are two things I've told you. One is the ideology and the second is the forces on the ground that are being uh, trained with this kind of ideology and given empowerment uh, to create uh, gadar against uh, United States, against India. Actually, the book, Break uh, this Snakes in the Ganga, I started out writing a book called Breaking America. That was my title. Because of, I thought that what I'm discovering is actually breaking America. And a lot of uh, white Americans were very concerned, said, you know, you should get that book out because that's a very important topic. And I'm thinking of getting that book out also. But then I figured, you know, India needs to know about this because this is all happening to India very quickly. And so I, I, in, I turned it into Indian examples just to get it out very quickly. But I will also work on uh, breaking America. And I'm sure there is also a uh, need for a breaking Britain book. Because you have, we have snakes in the Thames also, <laughs> and, in, and, and some crocodiles also, so not just ordinary snakes. So you see, the third area, so we talked about ideology, we talked about uh, the forces. The third area is like, who's funding it? And you know, this is where it's very sad. Indian billionaires have put up chairs in Harvard. There is a Mahindra Humanities Center where they're doing this kind of work. They're bringing all the Khalistanis, they're bringing the Islamists, and they're bringing all these sort of people to uh, to uh, create, uh, you know, problems for India. And there is a Lakshmi Mittal and Family Center for South Asia Studies. They're doing this. There's a Piramal Center for Public Health. But what are the papers they produced? Papers like, uh, were Dalits given fair treatment during covid uh, was there a prejudice in uh, vaccination, uh, prejudice against Muslims? These are kind of uh, topics, uh, you know, you can produce any knowledge based on who you fund and what you, what the topic is. So, uh, rather, and there was not a single topic in the Piramal. I told, I'm meeting Ajay Piramal, I've written to him and he said, fine, I'll meet you. So, next time in September, I'll meet him and I'll tell him all this. There was not a single paper in any of his presentations, any of the seminars, because he's the, he runs the Piramal School, the Center for uh, uh, Public Health at Harvard. Not a single one on 
the use of Ayurveda as a successful treatment. Not a single paper like that. Not a single paper that India actually pioneered a lot of the vaccination, gave free vaccinations and inexpensive vaccinations to the largest population in the world. And India managed the COVID crisis quite well compared to its uh, considering the level of uh, income of people. There, I thought that uh, the Piramal Center at Harvard would showcase our success rather than showcasing how we are not doing justice to the Muslims and the Dalits and all that, putting our dirty linen out there. And the same Piramal, the same Mahindra and the same Mittal and many others like them are considered big heroes in India. They are awarded and considered big netas and uh, not netas in the political sense, but like nationalistic and political leaders. But what is going on? Why is it that in India they're one way and they have a lot of machinery for PR, but when they go to Harvard, they suck up to this kind of a wokeism and give them money? Is it because they want their kids to get in? Is it because they have an inferiority complex? They want to become like a, a, a white adjacent, maybe they want to become. Uh, maybe they, maybe, you know, this good business deal. Maybe you'll sit on a board or some committee and you rub noses with, uh, rub shoulders with some guys who are big shots and get deals, business deals. Whatever the reason is, I'm only concerned about why the hell are they doing all this? And they should explain. So, then, you know, there is a, one of the worst anti-Hindu, anti-India professors in, anywhere in the Western world is a man called Hanson. He's written so many books against, you know, Hindutva, chauvinism, fascism, you know, this saffron, uh, the, the India is losing its democracy. He just goes on and on writing books and papers still all the time he's doing that. And guess what is his official job title? His official job title is Reliance Dhirubhai Ambani Professor at Stanford. What a shameful thing. That's on his card. So I'm not telling you anything. I'm not doing badnami of the uh, Reliance people. This is on the card of this guy. And this is the backdrop on which all these talks happen. And this is at Stanford University. So either... I mean, I, I don't think you, uh, uh, Mukesh Amani could say he doesn't know this. He probably, he must, ha he must know this. So why is it going on is an, is an important issue. The other thing that uh, the, in the corporate world, they have come up with these indexes. There is an ESG index. There is a DEI index. These kind of indexes are measuring how good a citizen you are as a company, as a business. And there are certain people who give certificates of these indexes. These are the American and some British Consulting companies, McKinsey, Pricewaterhouse, all these kind of companies, they're going around looking at, you know, are you having enough social justice? How is your policy on environment? These kind of things. The intention seems very nice, but the criteria being applied is not our Vedic criteria of social justice. It's a very different Marxist and Judeo-Christian type of criteria of social justice. I asked them that if you want, uh, uh, if you want to uh, have an, a score on environmental, uh, you know, behavior, then you should condemn uh, the meat industry because my, my idea of environment uh, respects all life. That's part of the environment. Uh, it is not that the environment is raw material. We don't want oil to run out and therefore we, uh, or we don't want to kill the fish because it's bad for the fishing industry. It's not an industrial uh, logic of uh, what constitutes good environmental behavior. It's also all respect for life, all life plants and life has its own person, personhood. The earth has, is a person. Earth is a person. Bhudevi. And we, we have all the animals, plants, they are persons. So when you, when you apply the Vedic criteria of good behavior for environmentalism, it will be a whole different idea of what is sattvic, what is not sattvic. 
Nothing in the ESG movement has even one sentence reflecting our values. It's all values that came from somewhere else. Our people are parroting this and thousands of people are being trained how to go around measuring. They have a certain measurement and they have a criteria. They ask you these questions and figure out on ESG, your score is good, not good. If the score is bad, you will not get funding. Banks and international funding institutions are being told this guy's score is bad. In fact, uh, uh, this Adani was uh, into this. They, they, they said we'll, they'll withdraw certain funding because of his ESG rating gone down. So now, now they'll be looking at your social behavior. Are you, did you shake hands with the Dalit or did you go and shake hands with the Brahmin? And uh, did you go to the mosque and do the puja during Eid, uh, the prayer during Eid or not? And so this uh, face recognition and keeping track of all the, your whereabouts will give you a rating, your score. And so the, your, your own uh, consultants will tell you, sir, you better do this, that with, in front of cameras because our rating will go up, we'll get good funding. So this is now turned the whole ideology that I talked about into indexes to measure how compliant you are with these ideologies. And then these indexes are being administered by consulting companies who are trained in this. And this is taking over the corporate world. And I have friends who mean very well in India who are smart, intelligent, and their kids are ESG director here or DEI director there. These kind of uh, uh, different alphabetic acronyms representing various indexes. The, the, the definition of the index is coming from outside. The, the training on how you administer the index is coming from outside. The ideological controls are coming from outside. It's a colonial system. It's a system of colonizing you without you even knowing it. By telling you that, you know, this is, means you are good for environment or good for social justice, so we'll pat your back and we'll fly you to Harvard and you'll be felicitated and you'll get an award and so on. So there are, the probably the most dangerous of this is something called RFBF. I won't, I won't mention details unless somebody asks me a question, I'll tell you. But this is the, the third thing. This is the industry role in, as a breaking India force. The fourth is media. And I, 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 won't, I, I want time for Q&A, so I want to go through this very quickly. You know, the, the Harvard Newman Center is training a whole lot of media people, journalists here and there, and this ideology is being taught uh, on, on India, concerning India. So when you see an article in the BBC, the, those journalists and you, Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, those journalists got their training in this kind of logic. So you cannot just fight one journalist. You have to go up the system. And then in this, uh, aligned with the, the Harvard training of journalists and the Harvard training of government, Indian government officials go there for training at the Kennedy School, uh, aligned with this are Indian billionaires who are funding it. So the, the journalism training at Harvard, there are a lot of Indians who are also supporting scholarships, fellowships, research grants, and helping them. And some of the uh, Indian uh, uh, billionaires are funding, uh, uh, Azim Premji is a major one. They're funding uh, mechanisms in India, funds, where a lot of them put their money together. And then they put money into the wire and certain type of uh, anti-national type of media outlets. And there is no transparency. Uh, on the one hand, on one side, they're funding journalists as individuals to build their career, they take them to Harvard, get them a tappa, you know, get them, a, make them a certain type of ideological journalist. And then to build his career, they get him, his articles planted in the wire because they're funding the wire. So the media company is funded for promoting a certain ideology. And the individual journalists who are promising in this way are funded. 
and the two are put together. These are the funding mechanisms we've exposed in this, in this book. Now, an, a major problem with media is the arrival of AI. That's the subject of another book of mine called Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power some years ago. So now you all are suddenly woken up because there's chat GPT. I've written about it for the last 10 years that people are controlling this. This is not a level playing field. There is an ideological bias based on how you train the AI. It's like you have a child, whatever syllabus, whatever reading material, whatever curriculum you put out that will train, that will influence the child's mind. So you put him in a madrasa, it'll be one way. You put him in a gurukulam or in a, uh, one another way. You put him in a Catholic convent, it'll be another way. You put him in a Maoist camp, it'll be another way. Same child. So this way, similarly, AI is being trained and the question is who's training and using what material. So there is a there is a, something similar to chat GPT in Arabic being produced by the Saudi government and another one being produced by the Qatar government. These are for Arabic language people, a large number of people, to get all their knowledge in the future, all their knowledge, all their education, training their media, censoring, deciding who's right, who's wrong, whose tweet will go through, whose will not. The, the future of ideological brainwashing and filtering and bias and prejudice in the Arabic language is being controlled by these governments. And the same Qatari government, you know, has also Al Jazeera. So you know how sophisticated they are in projecting their soft power. I have been talking for 10 years that we need a similar Vedic oriented AI basis. And I just, I cannot disclose, but I'm actually, Infinity Foundation just started developing something like this. And Madhuresh Ji's friend in uh, Washington is a leader of our movement. And he's, he's doing this for us. So we want to have this. So, the, so that's the, the fourth one is the, is the media. Uh, I gave four, uh, the, the ideology, uh, the foreign forces, uh, the Indian industrialists, and the media. The fifth is the tech giants. And the, here is a huge story. You know, you all know how, uh, you know, uh, this uh, Google and these kind of people are controlling uh, the bias because they decide whom to de-platform and whom to censor. And uh, if I put out, when I, during COVID, I put out a video which they flagged as against community standards. And it was a video where I interviewed a good astrologer. And it was against community standards. But who decides? Another one they flagged as uh, against community standards they wanted, and they withdrew it was when I was interviewing uh, people in the public health in India. They were showcasing how the UP government has been very successful in controlling COVID using traditional methods and other methods, unconventional, unconventional methods, not consistent with Pfizer drugs and they flagged it. So, you know, this censorship is going on. And so uh, humans train the algorithm and then the algorithm is controlling you. So you are controlled no longer by human beings sitting and censoring. Like in the old days, it would be human beings saying, you can't say this, you can't say that. Your paper will get in, your proposal will get in, others will not. It's no longer a human being. It's an algorithm looking at everything and making decisions. But somebody trained the algorithm. And that algorithm training has been done with an ideological slant, with an ideological point of view. So we need to have our algorithms. We need to have our algorithm in all the Indian languages and in English, 
not only to protect the idea, the thinking of people in india from all these foreign influences but we should be projecting our uh, trained algorithm uh, and turn it loose in pakistan and in sri lanka and nepal and bangladesh and all the surrounding asian countries and export it everywhere just like if uh, if americans can put their algorithms and social media and put them everywhere and the arabs are now doing it with the arabic language after they've done with arabic language they'll translate all their ideology into english and also have their chat gpt their version of it in english also so why aren't we in that war we should be in that war that is the future cultural warfare and ideological warfare it is all this uh, ai empowered uh, you know thing going on so there's a lot uh, more that we have written we can talk about it uh, then then another thing i want to tell you about is the indian government i know it's touchy but i will tell you judiciary justice chandrachud actually openly quotes all this critical race theory critical caste theory wokeism he quotes these harvard people the same people that we are fighting and criticizing are his mentors so you have supreme court man chief justice quoting all this stuff quite an issue the national education policy nep 2020 i'm sorry to tell you there are a lot of very good things in it i fully support but it has opened the doors to bring american liberal arts into india with no checks and balances and asked and allowed and in fact invited american universities british universities foreign universities to set up campuses in india so all this stuff i'm fighting against harvard and maybe you guys some of you are fighting these things happening in oxford and various places now those those very people are going to set up campuses in india we brought them in by policy i i don't understand why we don't have a vedic social sciences i don't understand why we have only western social sciences in india in india social sciences if you look at the high school textbooks and you look at the upsc exam sociology it's all quoting western authorities and western sources there's no sociology based on indian knowledge systems and and when i launched my book uh, uh, varna jati caste uh, in delhi i had a discussion with two eminent indian social thinkers one a very eminent professor and the other was a activist and i asked them the question why don't we have vedic social sciences why isn't there a single book on that why isn't there a single dissertation on that why isn't there a single project on that we're doing it in our own way and we are going to produce a lot of stuff in the next 2 years on this issue our point of view our version of sociology and social thought we are going to put that out but why has it not been done Uh, we we keep we keep criticizing the other side but we should have our own why not put arthashastra dharmashastra the social thought in in mahabharat the social thought in gita all of that into a formal system of pedagogy and education and make them make them courses and put them everywhere so we have a lot of uh, such uh, uh, such uh, problems uh, to uh, to talk about and i'm happy to take questions on it the final category and then i'll stop i i have i'm not satisfied with hindu leadership it's our fault also i mean i have gone to gurus all the big gurus who are known you know sri sri and sadguru and yeah, and ask them to get involved in all these things now the issue is the gurus want to do be goody goody type nice will teach you meditation and mantra and but this fighting sticking your neck out is controversial you see it's it's a lot of fun to support causes that are non controversial you will not lose your chance to get a nobel prize or some award here and there okay but if you were to stick your neck out that is what is kshatriyata you have to do controversial work 
you will create some enemies people will come running after you but if you don't do it then we, our society is going nowhere our children are going to face all these things so maturity and good proper leadership requires that they have to stand up and take these stands i would like the ministry of external affairs to do these things more aggressively take on these kind of issues uh, and and i know they're doing a great job i know i met jay shankar and i have a lot of respect for him he's doing a great job responding to these problems when they come but we can be proactive and even anticipate and take the battle into the other side if 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 the americans can have a whole system of uh, investigating india's religious freedom and producing a report on it and then condemning it and china has a, 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 a human rights social justice report every year on united states and it produces its report in mandarin and says if you want to understand you come and read our mandarin we're going to tell you what it is and it's got straight stuff on what is going wrong if they can do that why is india scared to take on the same thing and say we're going to produce our report on international social justice i've in fact proposed it to several people uh, for the last 10 years uh, who are in this field uh of the of the culture and external affairs and all that and there doesn't seem to be interest i think people are happy that i'm doing it as an independent person but they wouldn't want to get their themselves involved in it because it's got controversy and i feel that this is sad i can only do it so long i'm 73 years old i put half my adult most of my adult life into this full time and i you know i think unless we get help from big institutions like the gurus like the government uh we cannot just continue this on our own i also feel that uh, our hindu leaders uh, at the grassroots are exceedingly good human beings very emotional very good good hearted but they are not necessarily well read they are not necessarily well informed and that competence also needs to be raised so having given you all these uh, I, these challenges i want to also tell you that the good news is all this will go on and create a lot of havoc and destruction but my own investigation which i'm going to write about in next couple of books next few books is that it's very clear that vedic resources are needed to solve world problems in society you see unless the individual using our adhyatma vidya techniques the whole meditation yoga or lifestyle unless the individual is upgraded to a higher level of consciousness you cannot build a society out of individuals who are flawed if the individuals have anger and they are mean and they are selfish and they are drugs and all those things greedy then those individuals no matter how many laws or how many social theories you have that kind of a society will always be destructive so we may have one destructive society fighting another destructive society at some point in time we have to have vedic solutions articulated very nicely in plain language and made made available for the common pe- person not chauvinistic not talking about you know past we had pushpak viman and all that but talking about the future how do we solve today's problems the real problems that exist in, in society so that is the good news and that requires all of us to work come together work and we are doing our bit we want others to help us so with that i will conclude and would welcome any questions or any comments thank you so much namaste
how is breaking india 2.0 different because this is called breaking india 2.0 so breaking india 1.0 was uh, forces that were undermining india in the villages poor people less educated people exploiting them converting them giving them food and, and uh, health and converting their religion uh, maoists in the villages uh, so basically it was the forces that were not targeting elites they were not targeting uh, the the government people in niti ayog they were not targeting industrialists and their children they were not targeting elite universities like ashoka uh, and so on uh, they, they were not doing that they were targeting the grassroots the lower echelon of society if you will breaking india 2.0 is targeting india at the top in terms of the where the the influence is so this is where harvard comes in harvard would be the wrong wrong center to target the village people and the poor people because nobody there cares about harvard nobody knows or heard about it it's not that great oxford would not be the place that is going to influence some village in a you know you, you need church people and you need maoist people but for breaking in their 2.0 since the strategy is to take on the leadership the leadership in all segments of society media and academics and business and government and government so the, if you want to infiltrate the top tier of society you need harvard you need world economic forum you need oxford you need ideology that comes out looking very sophisticated like this esg and this dei and all these very sophisticated theories and they have to be put in a manner that uh, the the there is prestige the, if you go to some fancy high level party uh, with top level indian people anywhere in the world they are right and left convinced of all this stuff so it has been marketed to them in a very sophisticated way because that, that's why breaking india 2.0 is far more dangerous than 1.0 now recently ashley tellers had said in an interview that indian elites are vastly different from other country elites so if you are in terms of the vision they have for the country so if you ask the elites of any country they would want their country to attain you know great power status but not so with indian elites so what do you think about this are they are susceptible to the breaking india forces that you are talking about well there is deep inferiority complex and i'm sorry i say this to the billionaires i i meet some of them and privately i don't want to insult them in public but in, i say no matter how many zeros you put at the end of your financial statement the point is if you are not able to stand up to the white man or the uh, any any foreign person uh, and you in front of him you are sort of shaking and being scared and all that then you are really a colonized in your mind still so uh, our people and i'm not and i'm not talking about arrogance i'm not talking about arrogance i'm talking about uh, you know well thought out well formulated balanced statements uh, so for instance i would have liked the piramal center at harvard as i said to champion india's uh, ayurved and india's success in the covid because they had so many seminars and conferences on covid and they only looked at negative things and similarly when the mahindra center Uh, which is run by one of the world's prom most prominent uh, uh, postmodernists uh, he used to be in oxford and uh, they brought him to united states in harvard uh, so there why not champion india's liberal arts which have a tremendous response to postmodernism in fact postmodernism borrowed so many things from indian thought and then twisted it 
So why not have seminars and conferences which bring that out? So many liberal American thinkers were influenced by India. Why not have that? So I, I find that uh, Indian elite, certainly the corporate elite are scared to do all this. The gurus don't want to get into controversy. They're all looking for some international accolades, which again is a sign of inferiority complex, if you will. So media are all kind of already for a while they've been sold out and they're getting so much funding. By the way, we've started a project. Those of you who have seen my uh, YouTube series with a man called Dr. Joel Finkelstein. He's at Princeton University. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's involved in US national security and he searches the dark web. He uses AI to come up with uh, what, who funds what, where do all these influences come on in uh, uh, social media. And he's started studying the, so the, through that, he started studying who was behind uh, Leicester's Hindu-Muslim riots and who is behind some of the violence against Hindu temples uh, in various parts of the world and who is behind the Khalistanis. And it's a very interesting thing. This is the sort of thing we ought to be doing. The, but the, he's doing it. He's a friend. So he's sharing all this with me and we're going to produce some joint work on this. So the finger goes to a lot of elites who are indirectly supporting these things. They are not just neutral, but they are, you know, sometimes you see a father who made all his money, billionaire, uh, maybe good Bharatiya, very nice uh, Hindu, and he has all the uh, practices and all, but his son, daughter, don't want any, anything to do with it, and they're gone the other way, and so they're s spending this money. That's a tragedy. Say that English language uh, seen as a marker of privilege and uh, the best mode of knowledge acquisition in India uh, has been a contributing factor in creating this elitist mindset and an idolization of West. Yeah, I call it the English caste system. This is the English caste system. It's, a, it's the most uh, active caste system. Nobody is getting a job because he knows Sanskrit in some top job in India. And nobody is losing his job because they say, okay, you don't know Sanskrit, so you are out. And yet they keep blaming that these Brahmins control Sanskrit and therefore they were oppressing. But today, who cares if they control Sanskrit? Unfortunately, I wish it were the case that Sanskrit were that important. But unfortunately, it is not. It is English language. It is, it is not only how much you know, but how you speak, what's your accent, what's your idiom, what books you've read, whom you can quote, where all you've been, what all you've uh, stamped on your passport. You know, all of that kind of is the, the Indian's reference point is the... Anglo-American Western world. And that is the gold standard. You specifically talk about Harvard. Is, is this problem limited to this one institution and why should we be paying so much attention to uh, Harvard? So, you know, in each of my books, I picked up one big issue and I always targeted the biggest. The reason you target the biggest is that if you can show that I can stand my ground and they have no rebuttal, if I can show that with all their billions of dollars and challenges, and by the way, this book was launched at Harvard University in their faculty club, which is a very prestigious book. And in one of the panel discussions, uh, where I was talking about how the uh, Kennedy School brainwashes Indian IS people, they come and they teach them all this kind of stuff, anti-India stuff, and Indian government is funding it. Uh, in one of the panel discussions, one man stood up and said, I'm an IS officer, I'm here at Harvard, at the Kennedy School, and whatever he's saying is true. And he says that in class, 
since I'm writing essays and articles, my my contributions are pro India. I'm never acknowledged when I raise my hand. Those who are saying anti India things, they are given a lot of space. And even the articles selected to be featured are all anti India. So this is what's going on. And you know, so Harvard is the nest of snakes. And from there, the snakes are being produced and they are being sent all over. The, uh, we have shown a whole pipeline of uh, Indian billionaires going there, funding it, and then Indian billionaires and uh, other people funding institutions in India, like Ashoka, like Kriya University in the South. There are a whole lot, 15 or 20 of these that we've named, some media companies, and how they are all aligned. Harvard provides the legitimacy, the gravitas, the depth of uh, research and citations and all that, and they provide also the floor where important people can be brought in and given tapa and endorsed. And the the on and in India they can distribute all this stuff. So there's an end-to-end -end network from Harvard at one end. World Economic Forum is very much a Harvard product. I don't know if you know this, but Klaus Schwab, the chair, the founder and head of World Economic Forum, was his, was one of the top students of Henry Kissinger at Harvard. And when when Kissinger was a professor there at the Kennedy School. And this guy was his A student. They came up with the idea that to promote the, these ideologies that they want, they, they, there should be something which is outside any government jurisdiction. Out, it should be, nobody knows who they are, where they get their money from, what they do, nobody can tell them. So in Switzerland, they started World Economic Forum. So you see, all this is Harvard production. And so it's not only Harvard. I told you that this uh, um, uh, Reliance Dhirubhai Ambani chair is at Stanford. We know people at Brown University, Yale University, Columbia University, in the UK also. And in France, there is a whole lot of such people. France is full of such people. But you know, I wanted to pick one and really go deep into it and challenge them. And this is what I did in each book. And this also inspires more people to come out and write similar things about other, other universities. Um, now, this is Breaking India 2.0. So do you think Breaking India 2.0 swung into action given the progress that India has been making economically? I mean, just a decade ago, it was part of Fragile 5 and now it's the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, its global image has improved considerably. Uh, it, has more, it has more assertiveness in some of his decisions that it takes. So should we be looking at this through the lens of India's geopolitical rise? Yes, I think there are many factors there are old old grievances, people, and there are old agendas. People want to convert Hindus. That's an agenda. China wants to compromise and undermine India's success. That's an agenda. There are Indians uh, who want to uh, who want to uh, overthrow India. I mean, we've had communists and Marxists, and we have India's own Islamists and India's own uh, Maoist movements. There are so many Indians who proudly say anti-India things, proudly, very openly. I mean, I was very surprised at uh, uh, some people that I thought very highly of, uh, very openly talking about their identity has nothing to do with Bharat. They just don't relate to it. And they, they believe in this British idea that India was just a land of princes and the British gave made a nation as if there was no, no ancient civilization at all. And the British had to, through English language and railways and cricket, they gave us a nation. And this is the, this is the Shashi Tharoor theory of India. And so, so this is this is true. This is so we have uh, we have not pushed back enough uh, on this. And you know the strange thing is, you attack China anywhere, even in the United States, and there will be Chinese Americans who stand up and take whatever heat it, uh, is required, but they'll hit back. 
they will push back. We don't have enough Indians doing it because the few who do it are alone and therefore they become easy targets. And the authorities don't support them, don't, bring the, don't give them the backing that needed. So, you know, it's not about money and all that. It's about moral support. So I, that's why I'm so glad that uh, my friend is invited me here to Nehru Center and I feel very honored that uh, Indian government is helping us. Now, as far as where is the punch, because I'm not uh, converting, uh, convincing uh, uh, Mukesh Ambani, uh, I would ask you, where is your punch in convince, convincing Mukesh Ambani? Why should I do all the work? Why not you? Wait, wait, wait. Let me. Let me. Why is the Indian government doing, not doing it? So, I'll just tell you without naming. I've talked to a top person in the Indian government about this is happening against uh, India. Why don't you talk to these billionaires? And let's bring them together and we'll have a conference or a discussion and tell them not to fund such things. Because the government has some clout. And the off-the-record answer was that means we also need their funding because they fund our election. That is the reality. The democracy runs on money. The democracy runs on campaign contributions. These people are very smart. They give a lot of money. They give money to this party, they give money to that party. It's not like they're always giving money to just one party. So you don't want, you do want them to be in your good books. They also control media. The Indian media is controlled by its wealthy industrialists. So uh, to the extent media is very powerful, they also control media. So this is not a punch that an individual like me should do or is expected to do. I have given enough punches because as a result of my work, there are tens of thousands of people, including some sitting here, who've been awakened and who are now standing up and creating their own activity. So, so there are different kinds of punches. There is the punch of a scholar and author, which I have to give, and I'm doing my best. I'm 73 and I have 20 more books I will write. I tell you that. But there are punches that the government has to give. There are punches that the gurus have to stand up. So there are many different kinds of punches which have to come from different people. Thank you. My name is Lalit Mohan Joshi. Uh, I'm a writer and filmmaker. Uh, I have a great regard for you, uh, Rajivji. I've got your first book. My question is very, very pointed. You being such a veteran and you've done such a lot, have you had uh, discussed this with the Prime Minister of India, who is himself a visionary and has been giving a great leadership for the last 10 years. So, uh, personal, private conversations I don't want to discuss because it compromises. It, it's not fair. I mean, if somebody gives me their time on, a, on off camera, I should keep it private. So, the answer is that uh, I think uh, uh, the highest, at the highest levels, people do know these problems. Uh, in India, they do know about my work. Recently, there was a, uh, there was without mentioning me or my book, uh, the vice president twice uh, mentioned. Uh, once he was giving a, some memorial lecture, Rajendra Prasad memorial lecture, and once he was saying something else. Uh, in both contexts, once in Hindi and once in English, he says it's a matter of shame that certain people who are very rich are funding 
the world's largest in, in, uh, institution of learning to do anti-India things. And I don't know why they're doing it, but I would like them to stop. And that was exactly what we had briefed, sent a brief saying, this is what we want action from the government. So there are voices at that level uh, uh, that are aware of this. And now what is in their equation and how it plays into politics and elections. And I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on the, that part of it. Uh, thank you, Rajivji, for the wonderful analysis. Uh, my name is Shauni. Um, I'm from the University of Oxford that you so mentioned so many times, actually. Um, so my question is that as a member of the diaspora, um, a recent a line from a recent movie has stuck with me that Sarkar inki hai, her system to hamari hai. So my question is, as a, as a member of the diaspora who's at, in the in the stronghold of such a very openly leftist organization as Oxford University, what can we do as students, as as people who are who don't have that much, uh, let's say, uh, influential contacts? What can we do to take over the system to counter the narrative? How can we contribute? So we need my foundation needs people like you. We have an intellectual Kshatriya program and I'm mentoring them. In fact, uh, we have a 12 people who are full-time working for us in India, uh, young people from the age of 25 to 35. And my goal is I want to train 108 such thinkers before I'm gone. I want to make them the next generation, you know, people who are doing, continuing this kind of work. So uh, an example of the output is this recent book, uh, 10 Heads of Ravan. Uh, each of the heads of Ravan, uh, we, we came up with 10 serious intellectuals are very intelligent, very hardworking, brilliant, but anti-India and anti-Hindu. And we featured them one, one article each. And serious research, each of them written by our team, separate team members. And we are now doing two more books. I can't disclose what they are, but they'll be very powerful books being done by our team. So we, what a student can do, and you're clearly intelligent, well-educated and well-read person, I can tell. I would love to, if you were to write to me offline separately, uh, yeah. You know, Rajiv Malhotra 2007, use that particular one okay. uh, at Gmail yeah. and give me your background, your offer, what you can do for us. See, it's one thing for people to say, what can we do? But then when we ask them to do it, they say, I don't have the time. I don't want to do it. You know, then the offer is just an emotional offer to get five seconds of limelight on camera. No, no, no. For but sure not. It, it is serious. <laughs> because you know, uh, I when, was you actually, say, yeah. when you say you can do it, I'll put it in front of a team and they will give you work to do. They'll... they'll Yes. Funding or that kind of manpower, you know, yes. that's so, you know, that's a that's a very good question. Why don't yeah. we have why don't we get the funding? The answer, yeah. the actual, the honest truth is we don't. I'm putting my own money for the last 30 years and that's exactly. all I do. Yeah. yeah. And I have yeah. only limited capacity. And there are luckily some mm -hmm. other people who are like minded who give their mm -hmm. support. And I just want to pick up your brain. You mentioned about the caste system in America, right? So my question is. That don't you think that's a straightforward case that people want to go to the coveted position, either it's a boardroom or the power position? I haven't seen anybody saying that I want to become a cleaner, give me 50% reservation there. Or I want to become a plumber, give me 50% reservation there. So why don't you think it's a straightforward case? People want that coveted position. That's question number one. And question number two is, do you ever see an era of brown adjacent? You see... Brown adjacent will happen when the Browns give themselves so much power that it will be enviable and others will want to become Brown adjacent.
or <coughs> at the same time we have uh, research temples in India. So why they can't put a, together a research center and we start all those research from there? It should not be controlled by anyone. So these are good ideas. Obviously, we've thought of them, and we go around asking the temples. We ask uh, the big gurus to do it. Uh, you know, even here in the in this country, why go to India? Baps is one of the richest temples. So we've gone to Baps. They like me. They like me to come and give a talk. Okay, and they respect me. And uh, I knew Pramukh Swami, the previous one the head. You know, uh, so they're very, we're fond of each other. We support each other. I'm helping them in their legal issue. They have a problem in the U.S. Some somebody fighting case against them. So I'm helping. Uh, we are friends at that level. But they have such deep pockets. They keep building temples that are worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars each. But there is no think tank. There is no research center for this. I mean, I cannot make their policy. But at some point, they have to realize the attacks against them that they have. They are now getting very serious attacks are from the same people I have named in the book. In the book, I have named some people in the United States. Same people are now fighting against. Baps. So at some point they have to say that instead of just defending, 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 we also have to do proactive. We have to fund research and we have to identify people before it's too late, and we have to prevent them from doing all this by being proactive and coming up with counter arguments. They have to now come up with that themselves. I mean, they are very intelligent people, and and they are you know they have got deep pockets. I would love to have such people supporting us. Um, big fan. Just a quick question on the address you had today. You started off saying that you know you you somewhere started saying you feel for America as an American citizen. You should feel. I mean, you started talking about the decline in America, American values or American lifestyle or the dominance of America. But towards the end, you kind of you know when it came to the political dominance or um, the industrial dominance of America, you kind of sounded a little bit of. I don't want to say anti-America, but more of pro-India. I mean, is that a kind of a dichotomy in the way you see so America? I don't think there's a there's a contradiction there. I mean, I love America as a, a you know. You look at America was is so innovative. In the last hundred years, all the major industries they developed from automobiles to aero, aerospace to computers to internet to all the kind of stuff. Every one industry after another. Is, America is not making companies, but making industries, whole industries. And even future, whatever whatever you see right now, many of those industries America is pioneering. So I respect that. I'm a technocrat. I'm a I'm a meritocratic person. I'm a physicist and a computer scientist. I believe in these things. And America has been a great place for me as a person with who's a nobody. I have no contact friend. There weren't any Indians, Indians when I went there. There very few. The town I went to, there were like six Indians the whole place, you know, and they had nothing to do with me. So it's all self-made. And and for a person like me, brown-skinned person, different religion, just on merit I can get ahead, and nobody stopped me, and nobody I never need anybody's quota or reference letter or this or that. I sefarish I just went on my own. So that's what I like about America. So you have to understand why I like America. It's a land of meritocracy and a land where anyone can be self-made. That is fantastic. So obviously I have reasons to like it, but I can at the same time also be critical. I'm very critical. I think that their policy on India is wrong. They all, they all. Previously, it was for Pakistan. Then they were mixed up trying to think that if we help China become rich, they will become our friend, which is kind of a stupid thing. And even now, you know, sometimes it's one president or another president. They keep getting mixed up on India, and now they need India in the quad. 
Okay, India is necessary in the Quad. Without India, the Quad won't work. There'll be no Indo-Pacific strategy of America without India. That is very clear. So they are out of necessity doing it. But I'm very upset that they have not been able to put India higher on the scale of their priorities. Okay, and get rid of all this nonsense. U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, which is re which reports to the U.S. Congress, and which is which is created by uh, Bill Clinton at his time. He created it. That it goes on penalizing India as some kind of a country that does not respect religious freedom. What nonsense is that? And so I also got problems with them. So on the one hand, there is a meritocracy which is making made America great. Okay, and now I'm worried that they may lose out to China, and China will be a far worse country for us. Honestly, if America lost out to China, we'll be in serious trouble, all of us. So, uh, on the other hand, I'm also upset at many American policies. So, why? What's wrong? Why can't you, similarly towards India, you can have a great love for all kind of great things and the ancient rishis and our Bharat and all that, and also say well, modern. Look at these modern uh, gurus; they're not living up to their uh, requirement. Uh, you know, leadership. Look at these billionaires. What's wrong with being uh, having a complex posture towards? A major, you know, a major country, a major entity like United States. You can't be all liking it or all hating it. You have to be very clear about these things I like and these things I don't. Similarly with India, I mean, there are so many policies like NEP. I think is wrong. They opened the floodgates to liberal arts education and invited all these uh, Western universities there. But I, I'm, I'm totally my whole life is driven by my life's meaning. Is based on the Vedic civilization, and that is all I live for from the time I was young till now, and that is how I will continue living. So that is how solidly Bharatiya I am. But at the same time, I also criticize many policies. There is no contradiction here. Um, we in UK had a riots in Leicester recently, and Pakistan ISI is always involved in running anti-India element in UK, America, and many other countries. Now, what would you suggest to us as a diaspora, Indian diaspora, to do? What can we do more than what we are doing? Please. So, if it's ISI, that's a government thing, and there is a role for the government to do which I can't and you can't. Government has to do something because we can't take on ISI. I mean, that's a instrument of state of a certain nation state. We can't take it on as ordinary people. So, there is a state level. Indian nation state has to do certain things. Which I'm sure they they have to think about. I don't know. What can we do as individuals is we have to continue. Uh, we have to produce good scholarship. See, I feel that we need to marry the scholarship with the activists. Right now, this is an important point. Right now, we have few people producing real original good scholarship that can be changing the paradigm, and a lot of people who are activists, and they are disconnected from the scholarship. They're going out on their own, doing their own thing. We do not have this mechanism to bring scholars and activists together and have them work together, and have the government support all this, whether it is this party or that party. As long as they are pro-Indian civilization, regardless of party, they should support this kind of a thing. So, and and then we need to take all this into the film industry, make movies out of it. We need to put it into the education system. So there's a lot of work like that which common people like us can do. If you are a sincere person. With energy and resources, and need to know what do I do with it? We'll give you work. We have no shortage of work.
thank you amish ji uh, i'll i'll request to please have a seat i will now request sushil ji key member of the fisi team to come on the stage and deliver the vote of thanks please how many of you would dream to retire at the age of 44 we all would right but how many are successful in doing that we have that person amongst us today who managed to do that and instead of going on luxury yachts expensive holidays and buying islands he decided to go on the battleground we think and assume that the battles are now over but well as we have just heard rajiv ji that is far from truth rajiv ji is one such fighter who is fighting the battles for us i know you probably cannot pictureize him with swords and shields riding on a horse giving war cries but believe me he is indeed doing that however the battles that i'm talking about are the battles of narratives and systematic targeting of the oldest civilization on this planet and that is the bharatiya civilization these are the intellectual battles and he is indeed a knight in the shining armor of knowledge and in this process he has produced some stellar astras just like brahmastras he too has produced rajivastras 12 of them breaking india 1.0 being different academic hinduphobia indra's net battle for sanskrit sanskrit non translatables ai and the future of power the power of machines the battle for iits 10 heads of ravana varna jati caste and of course the snakes in ganga now it is up to us as to how we master these rajivastras and use it against the nebulous nexus that is constantly working to dismantle our civilization so he's given us a brief overview about his a very small book of only 812 pages especially around wokeism grievances i just need the glasses you know bald and glasses i think they'll be able to form a big grievance class rajiv ji and i think uh, quite a few of us probably will be in that category very soon so thank you rajesh ji for coming here on the fisi platform and guiding us through the details of your latest book and also answering some of the burning questions that we have so bhaiyo and bhaino let's give a very warm and loud round of applause for rajesh ji